0: Inside the Kitchen Cupboard by Peter Murphy. Introduction. Why would I now want to write about a life lived as a child some 70 years ago? Is it because few things in the world today are remotely similar to those days, those dark days when the war in Europe was still underway? Is it because life then was so different from today that I believe it is important not to let the simple details be swept into the bin of history. There were few private cars, no supermarkets, no 24 hour shopping and food rationing was still in force. Television, the great plunderer of family and social life was at the very least in its infancy and life in general seemed gentler. It seemed to me that days were longer and the fun, simple and unsophisticated. Books and games and make-believe were alive and well, and no one could be summoned by the shrill tone of a mobile at any time of the day or night. Any journey, however short or long, usually by bus or train, was spent either reading or observing the world as it passed by, not with head lowered, paying homage to electric gods. Telephones were the old-fashioned Bakelite models with a speaker and an earpiece. Separate components on the one instrument. Christmas and Easter came at their allotted times of the year, and the retail hype and advertising ploys, whereby Easter eggs and Christmas stockings follow one another seamlessly, had not been thought of. Fast food, I hear you ask. Well, that depended on mother's speed in the kitchen, and there was not a golden arch in sight. I do not mean to paint a picture of an idyllic world. Far from it, and where I grew up, large areas of the city were comprised of bomb craters and ruins as the German bombers fled south from blitzing London, using the rivers as a night guide and dropping their remaining bombs to lighten their aircraft on the way. But there was an indomitable spirit abroad in England, and that is what I am trying to show in the book about a childhood – far removed from that of today and its domination by the electronic media, where imagination is largely replaced by touch-button contrived adventure. Inside the Kitchen Cupboard, Part 1 In the Beginning I was born three months after my father was killed. He, in war torn Tunisia, and me in war-torn England, in the midst of the bombing of the south coast. I was moved to Exeter with my two-year-old brother when I was a baby, a safer refuge it was thought at the time, and far from the expected seat of the German invasion, which of course never came to pass. As a child, I had never noticed the old chapel before, tucked away behind where the valiant soldier hotel had once stood, It had been a landmark, I recall, in the old days, when my mother would hoist my brother and me onto the bus to collect food from the city market. "'Single to the valiant soldier, please,' my mother would sing out, and for good measure add, "'And the babies are free!' There would always be a slight quaver in her voice as she dipped chilblain fingers into her scuffed leather change purse. I wonder what her reaction would have been if one day the answer had been no. But that never occurred so far as I recall. Now move inside the bus, my dear, the conductor would say cheerfully as eager hands helped my mother, still a young woman recently widowed with one baby and a toddler. Now where the old hotel used to stand, unscathed by the ferocious bombing that flattened so much of Exeter, there is just a derelict sight used as a temporary car park, space to cram in the hundreds of vehicles that daily pour in and out of the city, a casualty of the road-widening programme for the inner bypass. Difficult to imagine how things used to be in the good old days, except that there were no good old days, just old days, in reality. That's the trick of looking back. Everything seems funnier, and more light-hearted, and days consisted of twelve full hours, and you could feel time passing by. It was sunnier then, the evenings longer, despite the black clouds of despair and uncertainty, as the war rolled on across the world. But somehow, all this despondency was confined to the wings, and centre stage was occupied by sweetness and light, a sort of toffee cream sweetness that cloys the mouth and is liable to extract your fillings relatively painlessly, which certainly could never have been said for the process of inserting them, that's for sure. Inside the Kitchen Cupboard, Part 2, Delivery Men. Which brings me back to the valiant soldier and our dentist, a stooped, Silvery-haired ancient, or so he appeared to me as a child of three or four. His surgery was in the front of an old Georgian house on Barnfield Hill, near where the government food office used to be, and best accessed by alighting from the bus at the Valiant Soldier, if you were going on foot. As we didn't own a car until I was in my early twenties, Shanks's pony, as my mother called it, was our main mode of transport assisted by the Devon Omnibus Company. I can remember tramping up the hill, clinging to my mother's mitten, rain pouring down, our noses red and running, our faces pinched from the cold. My mother always carried the shopping bags. The old light green one, which was made of some sort of knobbly canvas, rough to the touch, was for the vegetables, or the dirty shopping, as my mother used to call it. The other bag, a tartan of nondescript origin, came into a much higher class of bag altogether and was only used for what now we would describe as dry goods. Then my mother called them simply groceries, which in a way makes it funny that when Robert arrived into our family, he came in the green canvas bag, the one that always carried the potatoes. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In those days, there was always a fair amount of Devon mud left on the potatoes, like some organic protective jacket, to ease them from the trauma of being dragged from their comfortable surroundings deep in the rich red soil on a remote hillside outside Exeter. Quite often, our vegetables would arrive by motorbike. The grocer hunched over his sputtering machine, wedged in by an enormous sidecar, loaded with greens, potatoes, apples, oranges, and all manner of root crops, such as beetroot and turnip, swede and parsnip. Nowadays, the grocer wouldn't even get out of his drive before health and safety, work cover, weights and measures, and the inspector general of main roads, and all that moves upon them, would surround him and his contraption weighing it down with all manner of red tape and infringement notices. Contraption is the only word that I can use to describe it. It was a contraption, a long, broad, flat, stout wooden board on a chassis with wheels, onto which were fastened a conglomeration of buckets, baskets, boxes and cartons, each secured in such a way as to prevent their content rolling off into the street. At the center of this Heath Robinson-like conveyance stood the essential piece of equipment to enable the whole thing to work, giving a semblance of fair pricing being in place. An enormous pair of metal scales with a shiny pan and weights of various shapes and sizes that balanced out the produce. It was very much touch and go, mostly the grocer's touch and the customer's go, as the scales appeared to dance to the grocer's special tune. I was too small, really, to understand the magic of this system, which always seemed weighted in the grocer's favour. I do remember my mother getting a fierce glare from strikingly black eyes under snow-white eyebrows, accompanied by a derisory snort from the grocer, when she timidly spoke up as a large clod of Devon earth was weighed in with the potatoes, all oh, part of the vegetable, tis said the grocer, wiping his dirty thick fingers on his equally dirty brown overalls and digging them into the worn leather bag that he had slung round his pumpkin fat stomach. Here, madam, and he thrust out a penny or two. Then, with a roar, the contraption moved on down the street. He's an old. Oh! Cheat, that's what he is, repeated my mother at least five times to no one in particular. This well-worn mantra became very familiar to me as I accompanied my mother on her almost daily shopping forays. I didn't know whether to feel sorry for my mother or for the grocer, but for some reason my sympathies lay with the latter. Inside the Kitchen Cupboard Part 3 the market it was the same when we went to the city market at Queen Street, a massive stone-floored area with faux Grecian columns and a trap for the bitter wind that seemed perpetually to inhabit its dubious spaces. My mother had her favorites among the stallholders, and she often said in a loud, rather educated voice. "'that embarrassed me even at that tender age. "'No, we're not going to him. "'He's an old cheat.' "'The object of my mother's remarks, "'a rotund, florid-faced man, "'weather-beaten face and worn leather cap to match, "'with a nose the colour of an aubergine, "'would look up and glare at my mother. "'Lesser mortals would turn to stone, "'but my mother took no notice. "'Now these apples, are they nice to eat? "'Are they ripe?' Are you quite certain she would say loudly the elderly lady behind the stall headscarf wrapped tightly round grey woolly curls peeping out from under would smile sweetly through toothless gums oh they's beautiful my dear fresh off of the tree in her thick devon accent very well if you're really sure they're nice i'll have three said my mother consulting her shopping list Of course, when we got home, it was inevitable that the ritual would start again. These apples are horrible, perfectly horrible. She's cheated me, that wicked old woman. I'm never going back to her again. That, of course, meant that the circle of acceptable market stalls to which my mother felt able to return shrank almost weakly, though she would still check out her cheats, as she called them just in case there was a bargain to be had. And bargains were always something that my mother seemed to be able to sniff out, a bit like a water diviner, perhaps, as she poked her way through what she fondly called the remnant shops. "'Come on, Mummy,' I used to call, as my brother and I both waited impatiently, stamping our little feet to keep them warm.' It seemed that my mother needed to prod and poke and turn over and upside down and inside out every skein of wool, every piece of cloth, every skellick of sewing equipment. Yes, my mother was a great one for those haberdashery shops. But to be fair, she was a brilliant knitter, sewer, maker and repairer of clothes and a handy general tailor as well. And not even the largest holes in our socks defeated my mother's extraordinary darning skills. My mother had an old sewing machine called Sadie, and if I had not been with her when she bought it, I would have sworn that it had been spirited straight out of a museum. As it was, my mother happened to spy it on one of her fossicking forays to the market, on what she fondly referred to as a non-food day. Are you sure it works properly? Is it a really good one? It looks rather wonky, she said. Now, wonky was one of my mother's favourite words. Tables were wonky, chairs were wonky, cups were wonky, and even a distant aunt living in a distinctly lesbian relationship was described as being wonky. But my mother was convinced by the sincerity of the face of the swarthy chipsy-like man behind the stall, as he wiped his brow on a red-spotted scarf wound round his neck. Why he was sweating, I do not know. It was winter, and there was a light powdering of snow on the steps at Queen Street, the chill wind piling little drifts into hitherto unknown corners. Oh dear, I don't suppose that you deliver, do you? said my mother in her best pleading voice. Now in those days, deliveries were quite the common expectance. The logman and his old horse, with the rubber-tired cart, clumped up the hill, creaking and jangling as the horse strained against the heavy load. I recall that horse. He was a large Clydesdale with a white blaze on his broad forehead and a mane yellowed with age. The reins ran through guides attached to which were little brass bells that jingled as he shook his head and blew gently into my hair. If I was lucky, my mother would give me a lump of sugar for the logman's horse and his pink hairy nose would nuzzle my outstretched palm, large blinkered brown eyes staring balefully down at me, a little boy in grey flannel shorts and a check shirt, and pullover, all arms and legs. The logman came from the quay, where he had a store set deep into the red cliff face that formed the embankment of the city above. I had peered into its murky depths, smelling of horse manure and sawn timber, on walks with my nanny into the city, when the river path was muddy, and we had to jump from tussock to tussock to avoid the deep red puddles. Inevitably, I slipped in, and returning home, my mother would berate both me and Nanny, sighing resignedly, Oh, heavens, do take off those filthy shoes and socks, outside in the porch. No, no, don't come in here, you naughty little boy. How do you get so filthy, Peter? Yes, I was one of those, I suppose, always in trouble and always doing the wrong thing. It seemed to me that the logman was in a perpetually foul mood as he flung the irregular-shaped chunks of wood from the cart up our short driveway. Now you promised me when I ordered them that the logs would be nice and look at those horrible big chunks, said my mother. The logman mumbled something, dug his hand into his leather apron and pulled out a dirty invoice book and a stub of pencil on which he spat. Before writing out the bill. Everyone in those days had a leather apron. At least you did if you were a delivery man. Well, there were exceptions. The onion man, for example. He used to arrive in spring on his bicycle with strings of onions dangling from the handlebars. His beret and his French accent jauntily flaunted for all to see. He used to come on the boats that used the canal on a regular basis, and as spring follows winter, he would arrive with the swallows. A slight figure with a deeply tanned face and a gallic, hook-nose, hands brown as walnuts. Madame, she would like some onions, yeah, n'est pas? He pronounced them oignons, and I thought him a dashing and charismatic figure. In fact, my ambition for the month or so after he had called was to be an onion man. I wanted to wear a dark blue beret, like he did, and have a suntanned face. Now, are your onions good? Last time they had horrid black patches on them, said my mother inevitably. Are you absolutely certain they're fresh? The onion man would shrug his shoulders in the classic Gallic gesture, and wrinkle up his dark brown eyes against an invisible sun. May we, oui, Madame, of course, say it is my lifeblood. Say as best from France. I would hover close by, listening to his heavy French accent, and imagining how I could step straight off the boat from France. At that stage everything outside Exeter was immensely foreign and unknown to me. He was a foreigner. And he became a sort of benchmark with his strange way of speaking and his dismissive gestures, foibles that I carefully pigeonholed in my mind as being quintessentially non-English. But no sooner had he disappeared down the hill and my mother's cleaver chopped into the first onion than I heard a shout from the kitchen. Oh, that nasty foreign Frenchman, he's cheated me, the mean old rogue. This onion is perfectly horrid. It's full of black spots. Inside the kitchen cupboard, part four, Robert and the fishmonger. When Robert arrived from the depths of the green canvas bag, I was quite surprised to see that his little furry paws and outside whiskers were not covered in red Devon mud and old crispy onion skins. How well I remember my mother coming into the kitchen with her two shopping bags. She looked as if she was carrying a permanent yoke. I'm sure that's how she grew her long, thin arms. And as it was bus or Shanks' pony for us, mostly the latter, that's probably where we got our long legs from as well. In those post-war days, we didn't even have bicycles, and wet, fine hail or shine, walking was a daily necessity. I was in our little kitchen with its small paned windows looking out onto the rock garden. In the center stood the table, which served as table and workbench combined, and had assumed an almost bleached appearance from all the scrubbing it had endured. Against the outside wall, Where the tall fir trees peeped in providing ominous shadow on all but the sunniest of days the small sink and draining board were placed and beside them the oven now i've got something special in here said my mother as she plonked down her heavy shopping bags and removed her headscarf somehow i do not remember my brother being there perhaps he was already at his junior boarding school but there was someone else, that I distinctly recall, and it may have been Dotty Nanny. Now, Dotty Nanny's going to take you for a walk whilst Mummy has a cigarette and a lie down, my mother would say in all seriousness. My mother only had one cigarette each day, and mostly it was just puffing and watching the blue smoke curl into the still air. Or perhaps, Dottie Nanny will be making your tea tonight, as Mummy has to go out. Or even, do as Dottie Nanny says, as Mummy is not feeling very well, is she, Dottie Nanny? Dotty Nanny would stand and nod her head and smile. Perhaps on reflection, she was short of something somewhere, but it certainly wasn't a desire to please my mother. So there was someone else in the kitchen that day and I remember my mother removing her soaking wet raincoat. It was light blue with dark blue buttons and she always called it her Danny Mac after the name of its manufacturer. Returning to the kitchen where I was on my knees quivering with excitement my mother gently lifted up the green canvas bag. Looking back now I believe I thought it would be a hamster as one of my favourite childhood books that my mother used to read to me before I went to sleep was about a hamster called James. But I never expected to see such a squashed up little furry face and tiny pink nose when my mother haltingly pulled back the zipper of the green canvas potato bag. Robert, so named by my mother because of his outsized paws, comparatively so, for such a tiny little fellow, leapt out of the bag and straight into the open oven, from which a minute or two earlier, a cottage pie had been removed. He gave a plaintive shriek and racing round the kitchen, shot out into the hall, up the stairs, and along the short landing, no doubt trying to cool down his little paws. And so, of course, the weekly visit of the fishmonger took on an added gravitas as Robert quickly grew from a kitten to a cat. None the worse, so it would seem, for his baptism of fire. He was a beautiful tortoiseshell colour with soft white paws and a most superior air about him, even as a kitten. My mother would stand at the back door calling into the night, "'Robert! Robert! Robbie! 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 Robert!' in tones ranging from soprano through to contralto, punctuated by shrill whistles, but Robert had a mind of his own. Eventually, after the back door had been closed and bolted shut, and we had settled down for a game of happy families in the drawing room, it was frightfully lower class to talk about the lounge room, and heaven forbid that the word dessert be uttered at our home. No, it was always the drawing room, or the morning room, whatever the time of day. As a child, I did find it puzzling and slightly confusing how in our house, afters and serviettes were replaced by puddings and table napkins. Then there would be a pathetic scratching at the window and a plaintive meow, and Robert would appear ready to be let in. But I confess that one thing I did not like was having to feed Robert. And even now, as I write this, the bile rises to the top of my throat as I think of the fish saucepan. Yes, my mother constantly told anyone who would listen. Robert is such a very lucky pussycat. He always has fresh fish for his dinner each week. It is best if I skip over the details of this. But suffice it to say that the fishmonger was able to offload the heads of his unfortunate charges onto my mother on the pretext that once boiled, the resulting mess was an ideal nutritious for the cat, my dear. The fishmonger had a little green van on the tailboard of which he set up his weighing scales and displayed his wares. He had no need to ring a bell as the grocer did. Although the grocer had no need either, as his sputtering, wheezing old motorbike and sidecar made a unique noise all of their own, which you could hear across the roofs of the houses and over the main road. The smell which preceded the fishmonger's van was followed by every cat in the neighbourhood. Occasionally, as well as buying fish heads for Robert, my mother would buy fish for us. Mostly, if I remember correctly, what we called yellow fish, which now I know to have been haddock. My mother prided herself on cooking fish pie, and using the skilful subterfuge that it was just like Mrs Tittlemouse makes for her kittens, knowing full well that my favourite book at the time was Beatrix Potter's The Tales of Peter Rabbit, it was easy to lull me into a false sense of security, and any mention of Peter Rabbit was a sure winner. It took me many, many years to be able to eat fish of my own free will, so to speak, but my mother insisted that it was good for us and that fish is the best thing to make your hair lovely and shiny. Later, whether having been warned in a premonition of what was to come, she added, and besides, it's very good for the brain. In those food deprived days immediately after the war, and because no doubt it was relatively less expensive than meat, we used to suffer fish twice a month. Now are you sure this is really fresh? my mother would say to the fishmonger, trying to catch his wavering eye, peering indirectly from under his cloth cap. His face had a rosy complexion and I recall his hands looked a bit like fish scales they were red and raw, from constantly delving into the icebox and filleting fish. But he always seemed to be looking elsewhere, which gave him a sort of lopsided appearance. "'Oh, yes, madam, I picked them out of the sea this morning,' he would say, with not a glimmer of embarrassment in telling such a dreadful lie. "'But it looks very limp. How do I know that it's fresh?' resumed my mother." nervously fingering her chin and her purse at the same moment. Oh, check his eyes, madam, that's how you can tell he's a freshen, the fishmonger would invariably say in his broad, deafened accent. I would try to peer over the tailboard of the van to see for myself, inevitably getting a fishy streak down the front of my jumper. Oh, get away, Peter, for goodness sake, you're covered in fish from head to toe. What will I do with you? My mother was always prone to exaggeration, such as when she used to say in a loud voice, "'Heavens, I couldn't get rid of the rubbish, "'but I made frantic love to one of the dustmen, "'and he took pity on me.'" "'Well, if you really think that these are fresh, "'then I'll have that one, please,' and my mother pointed to a nondescript, flat-looking fish, whose eyes, to my childish gaze, looked just the same as the glassy and nondescript stare of all of the other fish. Would you fillet it for me, please, as I don't want any nasty old bones, do I? Just as the fishmonger reached over and was about to lay the luckless fish on the filleting board, my mother would pipe up in her most irritating way. Oh, I think that one looks fresher, don't you? This last addressed to the fishmonger. Whatever you says, madam says the fishmonger resignedly, returning the about-to-be-filleted fish to the ice box. Oh, no, no, I think you are right after all. I think that first one looks fresher. Yes, I'll have that one, please. Thank you very much. Muttering under his breath and with a sigh, the fishmonger deftly fillets the luckless fish and places it on paper, handing it to my mother, his wandering eye looking down the road. "'Now how much is that?' my mother asks, her fingers nervously dipping in and out of her now-opened purse. "'Tis be two shillings and eight pennabeth!' "'Oh dear, I only seem to have two shillings and sixpence with me,' says my mother. "'And so it goes on, but the fish pie, with the benefit of hindsight, is excellent, except, that is, for the bones.' Inside the kitchen cupboard, part five, dentistry and other family pastimes. That old cheat, says my mother, wiping her hands on her apron. He told me that he had filleted it, and look at all these bones. That was all the excuse that was needed. Oh, mum, can't eat any more, too many bones, mum, don't want it any more and pushing my plate to the centre of the table, I would make as if to get up and go. Nonsense! Sit down this minute, you ungrateful little boy. You're to eat everything on that plate. Here, give it to me and I'll scrape off the bones. But it was too late, for by then the spell of Beatrix Potter had been broken and I was sent up to bed without any supper. Howling and yelling, I climbed up the stairs and fell asleep in my little bed listening to the wind sighing in the lime trees outside my window. On those occasions, I desperately wanted Robert to come and sleep with me, but my mother didn't believe in such things. And as my life progressed, many other things as well I found, especially when it came to a choice of bed companions. Times were difficult in those post-war years, and England was still on food rationing which is why we were trudging up Barnfield Hill from the valiant soldier that miserable wet day, past the surgery of the dreaded dentist, to the food office. Now that reminds me, says my mother, to no one in particular, I must remember to make an appointment to see Dr. Michaels, and also one for you boys as well. Grimacing under the onslaught of the rain, I turned my face up to my mother, Not for me, Mum, not today, please. Even at the tender age of three or maybe four, I had already been traumatized by Dr. Michaels and his antiquarian drill. The house that contained his surgery had a vast emptiness like a cemetery at night, but without the headstones. It also had its own peculiar smell that seemed to attach itself to you as you entered the waiting room with its hard upright chairs and old copies of the Tatler and Country Life. Just to have to walk past the surgery gave me a pain in the jaw, let alone to step inside and hear the heavy white-painted door creak shut, trapping me in the gloomy interior. The brass plate on the outside, said Dr. S. Michaels, dental surgeon. And then there was a string of meaningless initials, At least they were meaningless to me then. Graying crinkly hair to match his graying crinkly face and always peering short-sightedly over thick horn-rimmed spectacles. Dr. Michaels wore a sort of double-breasted button-over white jacket as his working gear. His smile through yellowed teeth was that of a predator and as I settled in the chair, my little body was rigid with fear feeling the picker probing my childish mouth and sticking momentarily as it honed in on yet another cavity. Tears came to my eyes and no amount of promises by my mother of a bottle of ginger beer at the Mount Radford pub afterwards could loosen my fear. But at least I went. Not so my brother, who at the very mention of the dead... was away as fast as a rabbit and not to be seen for the rest of the day. Me, I was just a softie. As I didn't want to hurt my mother, I was easily manipulated. Now you know it's not going to hurt. Just be a brave little boy for a few minutes, that's all. If you don't have your teeth looked at, they'll all fall out. No, no, mum, I wailed, my fists clenched in survivor mode. Go. Now, pull yourself together you're a big boy, you're nearly five years old. Yes, in about another year or so, but of course I didn't know that at the time. And so it went on, until in the end, the trauma of going was so great, I prayed that something terrible would happen to Dr. Michaels and Barnfield Hill. To this day, I wonder if I will ever be forgiven for wreaking such vengeance on the people of Barnfield Hill and Dr. Michaels in particular. The good doctor had a stroke, and although he went back to practice, it was not on me. Of course, my mother was still keen that he remained the family's dentist, but one look at his crumpled body stooped over his walking cane and reaching for the drill with his spare hand propelled me into action. The fulcrum of self-preservation, as against my mother's feelings and embarrassment, swung violently in my favour, and i shot out of the chair through the open french doors leading to the back garden and fled wailing down the street it was only then that i realized that i didn't have a penny to my name so i hurried down towards the valiant soldier where i knew that there was a shabby little second hand shop and a pawnbroker. broker Action. all i had in my pockets were a battered pocket knife with plastic sides and a picture of tarbridge on one side, and a Beefeater on the other, and my little black screw-top compass. I loved my little knife, which my mother had brought me home from a trip she'd made to London, wherever that was. I also loved my little compass, which I used on my imaginary journeys through the jungle by the river, full of wild beasts and hidden dangers. I had fallen fair and square into the dilemma that dogged my dear mother so much of her life. She found it difficult to make a decision. I was a strange child, I'll give you that, as I hung upside down from trees and slithered on my tummy through the wet grass down by the little stream. Naughty, difficult, temperamental and impossible would have been equally apt epithets. The sooner you go away to school, the better for you, my boy, was becoming one of my mother's more frequent sayings, and she could easily have added, and for my sanity as well. This refrain from my mother seemed to increase in direct proportion to my misplaced sense of adventure. Playing rafting on the stream at the bottom of our road was a sure invitation to have me wet to the skin Shoes and socks, muddied and full of water, shorts torn and dirty. But mum, I was playing swallows and amazons, I would protest, as my mother's hand found its mark on my wet backside. You'll be the death of me, my boy. Now get into that bath and wash yourself. You should be ashamed of putting me to all this work, and it's not even bath night. Did you know that? I felt guilty, and my eyes filled with tears for a minute or two. But then I was off again, my imagination taking me somewhere across the sea, to a land full of sunshine and good things to eat. An hour or so later, freshly scrubbed, my face shining and wearing a warm pair of pyjamas, I would come downstairs and sit by the fire, looking through a pack of happy families, at the time my favourite, possibly only, card game. I surreptitiously glanced sideways at my mother. To see if she is still cross with me trying to sidle a bit closer to her she is reading in her armchair the wireless playing her fingers moving jerkily as she knits a scarf or a jumper for me or my brother i've never known anyone who could do so many things at once and she never dropped a stitch years later she added watching television to her repertoire as she read, listened to the radio, or the ordinary wireless, as she insisted on calling it, and knitted increasingly complicated cable stitch sweaters. She certainly could never be accused of wasting her leisure time. But actually, we did not have television until I was well into my twenties, which is why, as children, it was such a treat to go to stay with my grandmother at her home at Canford Cliffs near Bournemouth. Granny had a huge black-and-white television set, around which we children would sit open-mouthed. Even the ubiquitous snowstorms failed to dull our enthusiasm, and when the vertical hold, which had a mind of its own, started to misbehave, we sat patiently staring at the screen as it rolled drunkenly up and down, and from side to side, waiting for it to clear itself. The television was our god, and my mother was able to exercise complete control over us by the simple expedient of threatening no television until you put your toys away, clean up the dining room, wipe the mud off your shoes, wash your hands and faces. The list was endless. The actual control of the television itself, however, was another matter completely. Only Granny was allowed to operate the controls, which were limited to the on-off switch. Everything else, according to Granny, was superfluous. At least, even if it was not, it was never used. If the picture was too dark, there was nothing that could be done. But what about the bright button, Granny, my brother or her cousin might say? They were all buttons, regardless of what they did and how they did it. Certainly not. Those buttons have been specially set by the television man and they cannot be moved. "'He told me never to touch them "'when he came to fit the roof aerial.' "'It had taken Granny a lot of soul-searching "'to have that television. "'It was rented, not purchased, "'as she didn't want to have an ugly H-shaped aerial "'permanently adorning the chimney. "'They're just so unsightly, Peggy, "'and so on, you, Granny said to our mother, "'when she was endeavouring to persuade herself "'that television was totally unnecessary. "'But in the end,' She gave in for us children. God bless her. There were, however, strict rules for watching the television at Granny's house. Nothing was to be eaten in the drawing room in front of the television, so TV suppers were strictly not for us. And that led to another incident, I recall. Granny, with the force of the Lord overwhelming the Egyptians as they crossed the Red Sea after the fleeing Israelites, marched into the drawing room one evening and deftly turned off the television, just as my brother and I were about to watch the climax to some childish thriller. Oh, Granny, but there's only a couple of minutes to go before it's over, we screamed in unison. We only want to see the end. Please, Granny, turn it on just this once, we pleaded. Now the television man in his wisdom and in his instructions to Granny that in her mind had assumed the tablets of Moses had advised her never to click the television on and off without giving it time to warm up and cool down. Granny in her wisdom had interpreted this tenet to mean that once the television was switched off then a period of at least five, but preferably 10 minutes must be allowed before it could be switched back on again. Without a second's hesitation, my brother, who was older and bolder than me, lunged at the television and clicked on the switch, even as Granny stood open-mouthed at the drawing-room door. The television emitted a high-pitched whine, somewhere between a shriek and a scream, and the next minute the Swedish crystal bars on the mantelpiece shattered, spilling water and flowers across the hearth. Granny's rules were never called into question again, at least not insofar as the operation of the television was concerned. Inside the Kitchen Cupboard Part 6 The Dreaded Boots and Aunt Olive Comes to Stay But we children also listened to the radio serials, and amongst them, and our favourite, I seem to remember was lost in space crouching in my brother's bedroom at granny's house each clasping a mug of hot cocoa or drinking chocolate as my mother insisted on calling it listening transfixed as the rain whipped across the window we were oblivious to any noise or the billowing curtains as we were transported effortlessly into an alien world by the crackling airwaves as our heroes talk to us from their capsule, high in outer space. The only problem in those nocturnal travels was Boots. Boots was Granny's large tabby, more white than tabby to be fair, pussycat. Now I am the first to give anyone the benefit of the doubt, especially where pussycats are concerned, but Boots was a vicious bully. He would take up residence on one or other of our beds and refuse to move, making it impossible for us to snuggle in and listen to the radio. The first approach was the gentle one. Come on, booty, off you jump, there's a good boy, followed by an outstretched hand. Yow, screech, meow. The room would erupt like a cage full of monkeys, suddenly realising that they were destined for the laboratory. At the same time, a scimitar-like claw would be unsheathed, faster than the blade of a guillotine could drop. Yow! We would scream. Mummy, Booty's on the bed and he's scratched my arm. Scratch was a mild term for the deep lesion that Booty inflicted as he simultaneously swished his tail from side to side and bared his teeth in a harsh, fishy snarl (laughs) at the back of his throat. Mummy, hurry, we're going to miss Dandair." or whatever the current radio favourite happened to be. My mother would appear with a cushion, which she would wave ineffectually at Boots. Get off now, Booty. Shoo, shoo. And she would clap her hands as Boots, with another vicious swipe of his claw, removed the stuffing from the cushion so that he was covered in blobs of fluff and feathers. His fishy breath made one step back further even if his fully bared fangs failed to deter. Mum, Booty won't get off the boy's bed, my mother would shout from the bedroom door, and next thing Granny's heavy frame would be heard coming up the stairs. Booty, Booty, get off that bed at once, do you hear me? She would call, slightly out of breath, and still climbing the stairs. Before she had even entered the room, Boots pricked up his ears and shot off the bed, nearly knocking us children over as Granny entered, clapping her hands. You naughty, wicked pussycat! Do you hear, Booty? She called after his fleeing form as he hurtled down the stairs. And then there was Aunt Olive. There had been an Uncle Harold, a small, dapper man with a carefully clipped moustache and short grey hair plastered close to his head. He always seemed rather timid to me, but maybe it was just that Aunt Olive was so formidable. She was the opposite to Uncle Harold, a large woman, always wrapped up in coats and scarves, and with a brown beret or a brown hat of some sort on her head. As small and slim as was Uncle Harold, Aunt Olive was the opposite, with a large round face and kindly eyes and pudgy hands her fingers adorned with rings that I secretly used to envy and wished that I could wear. I did try some on once when I went into the bathroom to find that Aunt Olive, having taken her rings off, had inadvertently left them in a dish beside the basin. My fingers soon flashed with golden emeralds, and I remember an enormous ruby, which looked like a tomato on my finger, but a little red aniseed ball on Aunt Olive. She had her own special smell about her, I remember. Some people do, you know. Not unpleasant, just defining. A sort of mixture of woolens, perfume and mothballs. But it was, and always will be, quintessentially Aunt Olive to me. Sometimes when we went to stay with Granny, and if we were lucky it would be at Christmas, Aunt Olive would also arrive from her flat in Worthing on the south coast. Oh, Olive! "'How are you?' my mother would gush as Aunt Olive and her baggage fell across the porch through the open door into the house. "'Terrible, dear. Dreadful. Ghastly journey. Nothing but waiting and watching.' Aunt Olive never pronounced her Gs, and so we boys always delighted in imitating her. "'I like to think that I was the best at it, but as my brother didn't engage in such silly games, there wasn't much competition.' Now, Aunt Olive always arrived with a string of disasters in tow. The train was late, her seat was occupied, there was no one to carry her luggage. The magazine that she had bought at the kiosk on the station was missing the crossword puzzle. In the end, as I got beyond the first flush of boyhood, I got used to Aunt Olive and her baggage, both seen and unseen. She invariably travelled with an enormous brown handbag, In fact, I don't remember her being dressed in anything other than brown. Brown berry, brown twinset, brown skirt, brown coat, brown stockings and brown shoes. But her glasses, with their gold frames, could never disguise the kindness of her eyes. And as my grandmother's older sister, or one of them, she was a firm favourite of mine. Perhaps because they were sisters, Aunt Olive and Granny fought like cat and dog, and within minutes of arriving and settling herself in a large floral chintz armchair in the drawing room, Aunt Olive's booming voice could be heard. Nonsense, my dear, she would say knowingly. All she knows is knitting and walking, and I've seen her on many occasions. No, Olive, that's not correct, from Granny. She's a very talented woman. Well, I happen to know that's not telling the full story. Not only that, but she's selfish and boring. "'Anyone for a cup of tea?' says my mother, "'putting her head round the drawing-room door "'upon hearing the rumble of yet another argument. "'My back is shocking, my dear. "'I don't think I'll be able to do any walking just yet. "'Oh, don't worry, Olive. "'I'll bring it in to you here,' says my mother, "'eager to keep the peace.' "'With a massive fart, Granny heaves herself out of her chair, "'not as loungy or as chintzy as the one "'that Aunt Olive is presently slumped in, "'but more upright,' In an emerald green colour. Really Peggy, I hear my grandmother saying off stage as it were, Olive just has to be waited on hand and foot and it's totally unnecessary. Suitably chastened, my mother slides back to the kitchen and busies herself with getting the tea trolley ready. However, it is breakfast when Aunt Olive really comes into her own. The first time Aunt Olive came to stay, at least the first time I really can say that I was aware of Aunt Olive, was one Christmas when the night was cold and the stars shone like a million fireflies on a black satin blanket over Bournemouth. There was still a couple of days until the white-bearded gentleman himself was due to call, but we boys were getting very excited. We had fantasised as to what presents Aunt Olive had brought us. She had arrived with additional suitcases and an assortment of strong-looking carry bags, artfully sealed. To stop you boys looking in, as she told us with a twinkle in her eye. Great care with those, mind where you're walking, she instructed the taxi driver as he made his way up the garden path, pushing past the hydrangea bushes and the rhododendrons. Just put the ports here, commanded Aunt Olive. They were always ports to Aunt Olive, never suitcases, my dear. She and Uncle Harold had lived in Malaya in the good old days, and her conversation was often sprinkled with, when Harold and I were in Malaya at the club, my dear. This particular journey from Worthing, Aunt Olive was delighted to tell everyone, including the taxi driver standing outside in the cold, was the worst she'd ever had, my dear. Everything that could go wrong Had gone wrong, including no heatin in my carriage, my dear. You've never finished reading about it. Poor Aunt Olive. She was like my mother in that regard. If anything happened anywhere to anyone, it was to Aunt Olive. Shockin'. She regarded us with, I like to think, some sort of macabre sense of glee. People everywhere, my dear. Not a porter in sight, and here's me trying to pull my ports across the platform. No one lifted a finger and here she shook her brown-gloved finger at her captive audience. No lighting in our carriage, she continued, and nobody taken any notice. I've broken my collarbone with lifting all these bags and not a soul to help. Shocking it is, I'm lucky to be here. With such an outburst of woes, even before she entered the house, I knew that this Christmas was going to be very special. Aunt Olive professed herself completely snookered after supper, and that she was going to bed to rest her bunions. Yes, that was something else that afflicted poor Aunt Olive, shockin' bunions. That night, it must have been in reality early in the morning about 2 a.m., but as yet I hadn't learnt to tell the time, so I couldn't be sure. I heard the most terrifying noise. It was like an express train rushing through a tunnel and then crashing into a waterfall. I sat up in bed hugging the bedclothes under my chin. I listened, trying to pinpoint exactly from where it was coming. Cocking my head to one side, I tried to locate it, but it appeared to be moving. I heard the light on the landing rattle. I could swear that the train was coming closer, closer. Could it be that Father Christmas had ditched his reindeers, I wondered. Crouched up motionless under the smother of the bedclothes, I tried in vain to blot out the noise. "'determined not to give in to my fear. "'I must have dropped off to sleep unknowingly, "'for I woke to find a pale sun "'peering into my room through a fold in the flowered curtains. "'I can remember asking my mother "'what the terrifying noise was. "Sh, darling, don't mention it. "'You mustn't be rude to Aunt Olive,' she replied sternly. "'But Ma!' I started to say. "'At that moment, Aunt Olive hobbled into the dining room, plonking herself on a chair beside the table. Oh, how did you sleep, Aunt Olive? My mother asked in a treacly voice. Not a wink, my dear. Awake the whole night. I was thinking and worrying. I'm exhausted, my dear. So that was what the noise was all about. After that, many was the night that I listened to the earth-shattering snoring that seemed to characterize Aunt Olive's nocturnal adventures. But if my memory serves me correctly, Never once did I hear her acknowledge that she might have even had a minute or two of sleep. We loved Aunt Olive dearly, with all her idiosyncrasies and foibles. But there was another worrying trend that followed whenever Aunt Olive had been a guest. Inside the Kitchen Cupboard Part 7 Misunderstandings Washing up something that I was introduced to very early in my life, though to be honest, it was more the drying part at that stage. Aunt Olive could well have been the founder of the green movement, for she was all for saving water and she was a great believer in not washing anything that no one has been using, my dear. Hence, anything on the table at the end of the meal that looked even remotely clean, was thrust to one side by Aunt Olive and put away in a cupboard. As Aunt Olive's eyesight started to deteriorate, it became necessary to have an audit of every piece of crockery and cutlery, every plate, cup, saucer, dish and bowl after Aunt Olive's departure. But this rather annoying habit of putting away plates with smears of jam on them and cups drained of tea, but bearing the residue of sugar at the bottom, passed into family folklore. Years later, Even my mother would say fondly about a plate placed on the table but unused. You can do an Aunt Olive with that, meaning it could be put straight into the cupboard without even a perfunctory wipe. Those childhood holidays spent at Bournemouth were a mixture of fun and sadness, for by going away we always missed out on what could have been exciting invitations from friends at home. Those were the days when Christmas didn't start at the week after Easter as it does now, with the large department stores beginning the outrageous commercial countdown with pseudo-bonviviality. Christmas only started the fortnight before, and the city was full of twinkling lights strung around the old elm trees that circled the cathedral close. Shop windows not the massive facades of glass we have now, but the little individual panes of glass were meticulously decorated, each crisscrossed with miniature fairy lights and tinsel and holly. Many held as their central display a simple manger with a baby, its mother and the shepherd standing by as the snow lay outside. It was all so much fun then, as we stuck our noses red with the cold against the frosted panes of glass, and cars and buses snaked by in the rain and the slush. It is difficult to recall for certain, but we never had daily presents or even weekly treats, unless you counted a rosy apple, or at Christmas, the brilliant green Granny Smiths. You could tell the seasons by the market, and I always associated Granny Smith apples and tangerines with Christmas, as my mother, in her suede boots, her puss in boots, we used to call them, poked around the market stalls, looking for a bargain. Now are you sure that these Granny Smiths are nice, she would say, running her finger backwards and forwards under her nose and along the top of her lip nervously. I remember one particular Christmas, when as usual, we had taken the big royal blue coach to Bournemouth, suitcases stuffed full with winter clothes and presents beautifully wrapped and labelled by my mother for granny and assorted uncles and aunts, and of course us. We spent many hours looking as the pile of assorted coloured parcels grew higher and wider under granny's Christmas tree, carefully turning the parcels over, trying to read the labels, If truth was to tell, we could hardly read in those days, and my mother's running writing, as we called it, was a particular challenge. All loops and whirls and squiggles. Christmas seemed to last forever in the anticipation, but then, after waiting a year, it was over all too quickly. We arrived in the usual flurry by taxi. It's the house on the left down the rough road, we chorused from the back seat as our mother fished in her bag to find the money for the fare from the bus station. There was no credit then, and no credit cards either, and no one seemed to buy anything that they couldn't afford. Having said that, I do recall my mother discussing buying some furniture with her sister on something called the Never Never. Had I heard that now, I might have thought that it had some sort of indigenous connotation. Back then, I believe, it was a reference to higher purchase. No sooner had we arrived, settled in before a roaring fire, and Granny had given us each a big hug and a kiss and gone through the social calendar, the pantomime, tea at Bobby's, the store in Bournemouth, a Christmas lunch in a posh seaside hotel, and perhaps a children's party, than a major argument erupted between my mother and my grandmother. Quite what started this one, I do not know, because with the rain easing, my brother and I had gone for a walk with Susie, Granny's snappy little brown and black Manchester Terrier. As darkness descended and we returned home, we heard raised voices coming from the drawing room. Nonsense, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes, I do. Anyone would make that choice if they had to. Piffle, how could you be so insensitive?' I can't think what possessed you to make such a choice. Well, all I can say is that you're very lucky that you're not faced with it. Imagine what a pickle you'd be in. There was a short period of silence, and then it started again. Well, have you thought about things? Yes. And are you of the same opinion? Yes. Oh, you are so stubborn. I can't believe you actually believe what you're saying. There was a sound of crashing crockery as we knelt outside the drawing room door in the gloom of the hall with its special scent of musty overcoats and gumboots. The telephone rang and we pretended to re-enter the front door, loudly shutting it again as if we had only just arrived. My mother came out of the drawing room. She had been crying. She's a bully, I'm not going to give in to her. No, I'm entitled to my own opinions, my mother muttered to herself. It seemed her mind was preoccupied, as she barely noticed us, except to say a perfunctory, Oh, back again, boys. We left her kneeling on the large carved chest, with its high, ornate back pushed against the window, the sill of which made a handy ledge for the old-fashioned telephone. The drawing room was warm and the fire in the grate was glowing invitingly. But the atmosphere was distinctly chilly. I saw on the tea trolley the remains of one of Granny's china cups. It was in a number of fragments, a pool of tea covering the surface of the trolley and dripping slowly onto the cherry red carpet. Granny seemed to be mesmerised and was seated deep in her chair with tea stains on her woollen dress and cardigan. Had there been a fight? I mean a physical fight. My lip quivered, and I remember being afraid. Although I was used to the frequent arguments and bickering that erupted between my mother and our grandmother, her mother, nothing as drastic as this had occurred before. At least if it had, it had been when we were outside and out of earshot. I was puzzled as to what had happened and innocently asked my grandmother. Your mother is so stubborn, said Granny, heaving herself to her feet and causing a pool of tea to drip down her stocking leg. It was then that I noticed the fearsome Boots, who had somehow wedged himself between Granny and a cushion. He now descended onto the seat of the chair, still warm from Granny's sit-upon. Oh yes, that was the only way to talk about your bum. At least for us it was. Still puzzled, I helped wheel the tea trolley out into the little dining room and the dim darkness of the kitchen with its brown linoleum which had cracked beneath the stove. I didn't know what to say and my mother had gone upstairs. I pondered my approach carefully and decided it was better to ask my mother as Granny still seemed highly miffed. I could hear water running upstairs, and through the half-open bathroom door, I saw my mother dabbing her dress with a towel. Goodness, I thought, both of them covered in tea. Mum, can we have something to eat? I started. No, said my mother. It's nearly supper time, and you know Granny doesn't like you eating between meals. Why don't you get an apple if you're really hungry? Mum? Yes? Yes? Mum? Yes, what is it? Have you and Granny had a fight, Mum? There was silence, and then my mother turned round, and stooping down, she put her arm around my skinny shoulders. It's all right, darling. It was just a little misunderstanding. Well, Granny's not happy, Mummy, and she's in the kitchen all alone. At that moment, we heard a clatter of cutlery and the smashing of a plate or something, followed by a loud expletive. Not, I hasten to add, something that would be termed an expletive nowadays. More something along the lines of, oh goodness, oh heavens, what a butt-finger's I am. Mum, what happened? There's tea all over Granny and the carpet, and look at your dress. I think my eyes started to fill with tears, for my mother bent down and sat me on the bathroom chair. One of those wicker ones with stray pieces of straw that were liable to poke you in the bottom. Sit-upon, I mean, when you sat down. No, Granny and I were just having a grown-up discussion and there's nothing to be worried about, you funny little boy. Actually, I didn't think I was such a funny little boy at all and I was finding all of this very confusing. My mother gave a big sigh. Well, if you must know, she said, as if a child of four or five had any right to know at all, Granny thought that it was better to be blind rather than deaf, and I thought it was better to be deaf rather than blind. Naturally, I got the whole thing completely muddled, and I tore down the stairs, narrowly missing Susie at the bottom and getting a nasty nip on my ankle for the trouble. I burst into the kitchen to find my brother helping Granny prepare the supper. "'Granny, Granny!' I shouted. "'Mummy says you've gone blind and she's deaf, "'and I'm so sad as Mummy wanted to be blind as well!' Inside the Kitchen Cupboard Part 8 Adventures at Sea Life was mainly pretty tame, and our daily routine when we stayed with Granny revolved around running various errands to the bottom of the hill, where a number of small shops were clustered, a news agent, a grocer and a chemist amongst them. Looking back, I have a distinct feeling that many of these errands to pick up fruit and vegetables or a daily newspaper perhaps, were designed to keep us boys busy and out of mischief. But interspersed with our trips to the bottom of the hill were wonderful long walks through the woods that in those days surrounded the area where Granny lived and ran down to the sea. They were full of grey squirrels, inquisitive little fellows, although rumour had it that the greys, as they were known, had killed off all the red squirrels, which was why there were none to be seen in the woods. Whether this was true or not, I don't really know. After all, there were lots of other animals that were missing from the woods, including elephants, Lions, bears and wolves, I reasoned. What we didn't see, we made up for, and our imagination lacked little. Susie was cast in all manner of roles, from noble steed to slinking wolf, ready to pounce on some luckless traveller. There was only one made-up road near our grandmother's house, and that was the main road to Canford Cliffs. All of the rest, the tributaries as it were, that ran off it were what the family fondly referred to as rough roads of yellow gravel and clay. They were full of potholes uneven across their widths and with no pavement. In wet weather as the cars splashed through the yellow water we had to shrink onto the edge where the woods began to escape being showered with yellow mud. Sometimes we would find large lumps of flint in the road, which we would strike together, making sparks and creating that sulphury smell that only friction of stone on stone can make. Brilliant green woodpeckers were as common as house sparrows then, and we used to hear them drumming on the telegraph poles with a rapid staccato rhythm. In fact, they became such a nuisance that the local council was forced to replace all the wooden poles with alloy poles of some sort, which were much wider at their base than the old wooden ones. Which brings me to Miss Buss and Miss B. Two spinster sisters who dressed in identical clothes looked identical and wore the same dark-rimmed mannish spectacles. Inevitably, they always wore what my mother fondly referred to as sensible walking shoes. Daily dressed from head to foot in brown, brown berets, brown cardigans, brown coats, brown shoes, and if it was raining, brown umbrellas. My mother and my grandmother always referred to them in subdued tones, and my brother and I played endless games, racing unseen through the woods, to ambush them as they appeared down the road. And that is where the new alloy telegraph poles proved so handy as the larger diameter base meant hiding was that much easier. The woods were our domain and we spent days each holiday combing every ditch, every drain and every gully. But the woods were really only a vehicle that propelled us and our ever-burgeoning imagination towards our destination, the sea. That was where we inevitably ended up, with Susie running on ahead like a forward scout, bringing back information on the strength of the enemy. The beaches were exciting places. They still had the remains of the entanglements, concrete blocks and groins topped with barbed wire that had been hastily thrown up along England's south coast to repel the German invasion. Though the danger was over now, it was ideal for our fertile imaginations, and atop a pile of boulders and concrete buttresses peering out over the rusted barboire, we remained bastions of England and all that it stood for. If there was any doubt about our will to defend our homeland, then Susie, yapping loudly as the waves splashed up over us, was proof indeed of our resolve. I remember the grey-white caps, and on a clear day, people said that you could see France. Not that I ever saw such a phenomenon. But France, courtesy of the Onion Man, always seemed to figure somewhat prominently in my role-playing, and I imagined a country of nut-brown people wearing berets just out of sight of our beach. It was our beach, especially in the winter months, when the sand was damp and a deep yellow and the plaintive cry of the oyster catchers piped across the tearing waves. We walked miles, the spume from the waves blowing fiercely and covering our spare frames with crusts of salt. Our shoes wore perpetual tide marks where the waves had won in our games of chase up and down the tide line. Many was the time when we would stop to sit on a rock out of the screaming wind to wring the seawater out of our socks before continuing on our adventures. I think Susie used to look forward to us coming on holidays to Bournemouth, but sometimes, in her own stubborn way, she would say, enough is enough, boys, and she would sit down, refusing to move. We were used to casualties in our games, and Susie became just one more – but carrying her along the sand, cajoling her to take a few steps as we headed homewards, sometimes required untiring ingenuity. The way down to the beach was by way of steep paths known as chines, and our favourite was branksome chine, winding out of the woods between rhododendron bushes, and then on the steep descent to the beach, flanked either side by scraggy heath and beach huts. Sometimes, if we were lucky, Granny would hire one of the beach huts for the summer holidays, so that at least we could shelter from the wind and rain, which seemed to take particular notice of these diary dates. The adults would sit on deck chairs on the little wooden step and boil a kettle for a cup of tea, whilst we gingerly tiptoed across the rough ground, found the smooth concrete of the promenade and dashed into the freezing sea. I do not recall ever seeing what could be described as clear water at Bournemouth, or Camford Cliffs for that matter, which was Granny's beach of choice. Later, as we got older and started to branch out into our own version of underwater swimming, as we called it, the perpetual silt and weed made exploration a tricky affair. It was the journey back to the beach hut that I remember less fondly, As a child comprised mainly of skin and bone, I felt the cold even more than my brother, I believe. I was also very susceptible to sunburn, and in those days the mantra of slip, slap, slop had never been posed. The combination of extremely sore and raw shoulders, freezing legs and feet, and chattering teeth made for a typical summer's picnic at Camford Cliffs. Perhaps that is being unfair, But I do recall some very uncomfortable experiences and hopping from one chilled foot to the other over the stony ground, being towelled dry with a rough beach towel, always an old towel. We never had special beach towels then, which led me to a general reluctance to actually get wet. Falling into the water was of course a different matter and I seemed to have a knack for unintentionally getting wet whenever it was important to remain dry. My poor mother, I think she despaired of me, and I was regaled with threats such as, wait till you get to school, that'll teach you a lesson, you naughty little boy. But I always regretted causing hurt to my mother, and when she was upset, I did everything possible to make it up to her. Doing the dusting, cleaning out the fire, or bringing in some coal... Always a guaranteed disaster with cold dust finding its way from my hands to my hair, my face to my clothes, but at least I tried. My mother had little money and she was very thrifty and an expert at stretching things out. Every last drop of every bottle of sauce or jar of jam or honey was thoroughly scraped before a new one could be opened. My mother was, as was the norm in those days, an exquisite maker of jams and chutneys. She would bottle plums and pears and other fruit when she could get it for the winter months. And I recall that she used to put down eggs in a large pottery urn, which she filled with a liquid called water glass and placed in the larder with a pottery cap on the top. I especially loved my mother's orange marmalade and coming to the dining room table and finding a new jar ready to dig into. Liberally splitting the orange nectar on my toast, I would suddenly be confronted by my mother. Heavens, you've enough marmalade on there to feed an army, she would say with typical exaggeration, whereupon she would seize my heavily laden piece of toast and scrape off the excess so that all that remained was a faint smear. Clothes were particularly important for mum having two little boys, and I used to wear my brother's hand-me-downs more often than not. In order to ensure that my mother would get value for her money, she would insist on buying things at least two or three sizes too large. Shorts in particular, I remember with some embarrassment, even at that age, involved my mother going to work with Sadie to alter the offended garment by inserting various invisible tucks and turn-ups, which even with them, the shorts hung well below my brother's knees. But the strategy worked, because as he grew, the tucks and turn-ups were adjusted until the well-worn shorts came to be handed on to me. Naturally, by this time, a fair degree of wear and tear had taken place, Sometimes my mother could be persuaded that the particular garment had passed its use-by date. At others, it was re to fit me. I remember one particular afternoon in spring. It was blustery, but sunny, and our grandmother on my father's side, who was always known as Granny Murphy, was coming to tea. We always looked forward to seeing her chauffeur-driven car making its way down our road, which ended in a cul-de-sac. "'Now Mummy's busy getting ready for Granny, so out you go into the garden. "'But whatever you do, Peter, don't get yourself dirty. "'Now you won't, will you?' "'No, Mum,' I said dutifully, really meaning it, "'as we were both wearing our new light green Airtech shirts at the time, "'the new wonder cloth that breathed. "'Our brown sandals were clean, sneakers were yet to be invented,' and the nearest anything came to them was what we called plimsolls, plain white lace-up canvas shoes with a rubber sole. With smartly pressed little grey shorts, hair well brushed, hands and fingernails clean, we were out into the garden in a rush. To be truthful, I can't quite remember who started it, but it may as well have been me, as I was the one who got dirty. What about pretending I'm Peter Rabbit and you are McGregor? I suggested to my brother. And so our make-believe game started. True to the story, I had to pretend to crawl under the wire surrounding the vegetable patch, whilst my brother waved a bamboo stick as a make-believe rake. Wriggling along the grass on my stomach, little did I realise that I had strayed onto the earth where the carrots were planted, their feathery tops green and inviting. Oh gosh, I think I've dirtied my shirt, I said as I crouched in the garden, pretending to be a rabbit. Peter Rabbit, to be exact, hiding in the carrot patch. Oh, Mum's going to be so cross, said my brother, rather unnecessarily. I tried wiping my now rather grubby hands on my clean shorts to brush off the dirt around the pocket of my new shirt. The result was a smear of mud all down my front. "'In you come, boys, granny's here,' called my mother, "'as I tried to hide behind my brother in vain. "'You naughty, naughty little boy,' said my mother, "'as she saw my dirty clothes, "'and I recall getting a mighty hand smack "'across the back of my little legs "'that sent me hopping from one end of the kitchen to the other, "'and I let fly a frightened scream "'as tears poured down from my eyes, "'only adding to the general horror of my appearance.' Inside the Kitchen Cupboard Part 9 Granny Murphy and the Royal Clarence We always loved Granny's visits, but as we became older and she also started to age, it was quite difficult to know quite what to expect. Once my mother had just had a little man to do up the inside of the downstairs part of the house and fit a new towel rail in the downstairs cloakroom. It was never a toilet, as far as we were concerned. My mother always seemed to find what she invariably termed little men, regardless of their actual physical size. Oh, my dear, you'll never guess who's coming next week. Yes, I found this wonderful little man who can wallpaper the bedroom ceilings, and he's so reasonable. And so the word would be passed from mouth to mouth. But this particular little man had never reckoned on having to granny-proof the downstairs toilet towel rail. I must say, it was a funny little room, as toilets go, tucked away under the stairs with a very low ceiling that was never a problem when we were young. But as we became older, it was necessary to approach the toilet in something of a backbend. The little man had given the walls a smart coat of primrose paint, plumbed in a new basin and scraped back and painted the window. But pride of place was a shiny new towel rail, artfully concealed against the wall that ran alongside the toilet and securely fixed. My mother was very pleased with the result of this work, as before we had made do with a small hand towel hanging on a metal hook by the basin. How well I remember that sunny afternoon when Granny arrived, her chauffeur bustling round her and taking off her travelling rug, easing her feet into her shoes. She always changed into soft slippers for the rigours of car travel and arranging a mink stole about her shoulders. Granny's clothes always had their own distinctive smell. Something I can recall to this day, a mixture of mothballs and lavender, rose and potpourri, "'so that it preceded her before she actually appeared. "'Oh, Granny, you must see the garden. "'It's just a picture, "'and the snowdrops and crocuses under the apple trees "'are in full bloom. said my mother, "'gushing over with enthusiasm "'as she put her arms around Granny. "'All in good time, my dear. "'Just help me off with this stole. "'It's much too hot. "'Now, dear, I think I'll spend a penny first just to be comfortable after the long drive. Of course, Granny, and you can come and christen the new downstairs cloakroom, warbled away my mother as she carefully removed the mink stole from around Granny's shoulders and spread it on the sofa arm so that its head, with the dark, beady little eyes, seemed to be alive, looking for an elusive prey. With our mother's support, Granny made her way to the downstairs cloakroom. "'Now, are you sure you can manage?' said my mother solicitously. "'I'll be fine, my dear,' were the last words spoken by Granny "'as the cloakroom door was firmly closed. "'We boys went out into the kitchen next door to help with the tea trolley. "'Just as my mother was warming the pot, "'you could no more have tea in our house without first warming the pot "'than have a bath two nights in a row. "'There was the most almighty crash from the direction of the cloakroom.' followed by the sound of splintering wood and falling masonry. Heavens, said my mother, as Granny emerged in a cloud of brick dust, her shoulders covered in flakes of plaster of a light primrose colour. A post-mortem carried out later that afternoon revealed that Granny had heaved her not inconsiderable weight off the toilet seat by using the shiny new towel rail which the little man had so firmly embedded into the wall. The damage was reminiscent of that caused by the emergence of the were-rabbit with a gaping hole in the brickwork. Years later, as dear Granny became less and less able to manage her affairs, I might add she never appeared to have suffered any permanent damage, either physical or mental, following the downstairs cloakroom saga, as the incident came to be known in family folklore. I used to amuse visiting aunts and luckless others by reenacting the incident, choking on my own laughter, even if no one else thought it particularly funny. Poor Granny became more and more eccentric. One winter's evening, when our stout oak front door had been shut and the chain firmly fixed across it, and the curtains drawn against the damp air, and the drawing room all snug and cosy, there was a sharp ring on the doorbell. Heavens, who on earth can that be? said my mother. Peeping through a chink in the curtains, I spied the silhouette of Granny's Daimler. Actually it didn't belong to Granny, but it was always reserved for Granny whenever she was driven, either by old Mr Norman, her senior chauffeur, or his son, young Mr Norman, both of whom invariably wore somber grey suits and peaked caps. Granny's here, mum, I yelled. Tipping over the rosewood chair that stood in the bow window, in my excitement, my mother went to the front door and slid back the bolts and removed the safety chain. Outside, on the doormat in the cold of the porch, stood Granny, supported along one elbow by young Mister Norman, her other hand holding firmly to her stick. She was wearing a black hat, with a large pheasant's feather stuck in its band at a jaunty angle, and swathed from head to foot. "'in rugs, stoles, and coats of various descriptions. "'Oh, Granny, how lovely to see you,' said my mother. "'Why didn't you ring and tell us you were coming?' "'My dear, you go up and change, "'and I'll just talk to the boys, and we'll all go for a drive.' "'Oh, how wonderful,' witted my mother, "'as she scuttled upstairs to change into her finery. "'Ever the chatterbox, I piped up, "'Granny, where are we off to?' "'Now just wait until your mother comes down, my dears,' chuckled Granny in her mellow, rather masculine voice, dark eyes sparkling with merriment. This was all too much for me, for patience had never been a strong point in my makeup, and I was a most impetuous child. Racing out of the drawing room up the stairs, I banged on my mother's bedroom door, my fists drumming like rain on a tin roof.' "'Come on, Mummy, hurry up. Granny won't tell us where we're going. Hurry, please, Mummy!' I implored her from behind the dark wood of the door. "'Don't be such an impatient little boy,' came the firm voice from within. "'Go downstairs and wait while I spend a penny.' Going to the toilet was something we would rather not discuss in our house, and I often used to wonder as a child about the endless pennies that my mother used to spend. Of course, it was a most sensible and practical expression, because I do recall that at that time all public toilets, at least for the ladies, cost one penny. For boys and men it was free and a great conversation piece on the inequality of the sexes for the rather more risque in the drawing room. At last my mother came tripping down the stairs, scarf knotted round her neck, hair brushed, and a large blue handbag and gloves to match, clasped in one hand. I could smell the faintest whiff of rose perfume, only used on special occasions. "'Well, Granny, this is fun,' said my mother, now fully dressed, having spent her penny and, with her curiosity, getting the better of her. It was natural that the very instant that everyone was ready for the exciting journey to begin, and possibly more important, for the destination of the exciting journey to be announced, that I then piped up. "Ma'am, I want to do we." The look on my mother's face said it all. But Granny, who was, I recall, slightly hard of hearing by then, was beaming like a benevolent owl behind her spectacles, ready to reveal the great truth. I hesitated rationalising that I could always go after Granny had told us where we were going and before getting into the car. We all looked at Granny, who with a captive audience was not going to let this moment elude her without fighting for every second of centre stage. She adjusted the fox stole round her shoulders so that its eyes seemed to point directly at me. Raising her pudgy hands into the air, so that the light from the standard lamp, with its large floral shade, made her ring sparkle. She rose from the depths of her chair, leaning firmly on her polished cherry wood walking stick. My mother rushed forward to take her arm. Granny let out a thunderous fart. The music swelled to a crescendo. My dears! And here Granny clapped her hands together, letting go of her stick so that it fell to the carpet with a thwack. "'To the moon, my dears! We're off to the moon!' It was after that visit that I noticed that Granny started to exhibit more and more signs of strange behaviour. Though as a child, who was I to know what was and was not strange? Granny's forays into Exeter became, if anything, more rather than less frequent, she would bring my mother and arrange to meet us all for tea at the stately old Royal Clarence Hotel in the Cathedral Close. Arriving at the appointed time, having come into the city by bus, through the winding streets and up the steep hill past St Leonard's Church and the valiant soldier and the drab houses either side of the road, glistening in the rain, we would get off at South Street. I recall so clearly my mother saying to the bus conductor, who in those days always wore a uniform and a peaked cap. I remember at one stage wanting to be a bus conductor myself, when later on they had those shiny handheld ticket dispensers slung across their shoulders. I'll have one and two halves to South Street, thank you very much. Now, will it be top of South Street or bottom of South Street, madam? Oh no, the top of South Street said my mother, shocked to think that the bus conductor might have thought that she would want to get off by the White Hart Hotel. Not that there was anything wrong with the White Hart, as long as it remained purely as a landmark in much the same way as the valiant soldier. The buses were the large grey-green double-deckers with a wide platform at the rear on which the bus conductor would stand, legs braced as the swaying vehicle careered along narrow, wet streets at speeds exceeding 25 miles per hour. How I longed to be able to stand there on the platform, though perhaps I would hold on to the shiny pole that bisected it and from which the daring young things would swing to the pavement before the bus had pulled to a stop. I think my mother knew that that was also one of my secret desires, because she used to make sure that I was firmly seated towards the front of the lower deck of the bus. That is, if it wasn't standing room only, which it was more often than not, unless some kind man, it was always a kind man, gave up his seat for my mother, who was invariably carrying her two shopping bags. I'm sure that many of my mother's kind men bitterly regretted their chivalrous gestures as my mother thanked them effusively in her plummy accent like the queen i always thought much later except the queen i'm sure never carried a tartan shopping bag in one hand and a green canvas shopping bag in the other also she would be bound to have had at least one corgi with her oh how kind of you are you sure you can spare your seat Now that kind old man has offered his seat to us, darling, so sit down with mummy. That is kind of you, thank you so much. By which time the kind old man had either stepped off the bus or disappeared to another part of it, face flushed with embarrassment. But the top of South Street was without a doubt the premier destination, for amongst other notable places the Guildhall, where the Assizes were still held with all the pomp and ceremony of the law on circuit from London, the Gaumont Cinema, which morphed into a bingo hall in later years, the New Market Complex, and Horns, an old-style gentleman's outfitters, where the staff addressed one as Young Sir and my mother as Madam. When you shopped at Horns, Everything was tweeds and tape measures, subdued check shirts and stout walking shoes with thick woollen socks to match. But South Street was also the stop for the Cathedral Close. And when we were going to meet Granny on one of her trips to Exeter, my mother always liked to get a bit of shopping in first before we crossed the cobbled close beneath the dripping leaves of the elm trees. That was before Dutch elm disease decimated the lot. Then we made our way across past the exclusive furniture shop, Whipple Brothers and Row, to the Royal Clarence Hotel. Inevitably, Granny would already be ensconced in a massive chair, with waiters and waitresses flustering around her as she gave orders. Not that there was any doubt as to what she would have to eat. She and the family had been such an intrinsic part of the Clarence, as it was fondly known, that I'm quite certain that every new member of staff would have been thoroughly inducted to know Granny's tea habits by heart. Into the august, rarefied atmosphere of this old Exeter establishment we would come. My mother as always wiping her feet timidly on the doormat as the top-hatted doorman smiled his plastic smile showing his plastic teeth and pointing the way Like Granny, we were well known by the staff at the Clarence, but only as visitors, for we never actually paid for anything. And now I come to think of it, I can't even remember Granny ever paying for anything. My dears, she would sing out as she stirred her ample bottom, but without actually lifting it from the chair. Oh, Granny, so sorry to be late, but I did a little shopping, and I hope you don't mind. My mother's shrill voice by this time had aroused half of the room and there were mutters behind raised cake plates and a desultory rattling of cake forks and teacups at this unwelcome disturbance. The Royal Clarence was that sort of an establishment. People talked in subdued whispers and laughter, except for perhaps a truncated titter, was never heard. I did hear rumours that the local branch of the Devon Conservative Party met there, but politics was strictly not on the agenda at Granny's tea parties. Now, my dears, which cake you going to have, said Granny, pointing to a selection of rather stereotypical cakes on a large wooden trolley with white paper doilies, attended by a large wooden-looking woman with coiffed grey hair and a little white bonnet type of head covering. "'Oh, Granny, it all looks so delicious. I don't know which one to choose,' said my mother, with a rather too cheesy smile. "'I always found it strange, because afterwards going home on the bus, with the rain heavier than ever, "'and the shopping bags filled to capacity, my mother would always complain. "'Perfectly horrid little cakes, and not at all fresh. I can't think why Granny doesn't go somewhere else.' But like bees to a honeypot, the Murphys honed in on the Clarence. And years later, I honed in on Ruth, one of its barmaids. But that, as I say, was years later. I like to think that Granny might have been pleased with my choice of a pick-up venue, though she certainly would not have been pleased with my choice of girl. In those days, the servants' quarters of Granny's house, Dunsland Court, A rambling stone mansion on the edge of Dartmoor with the farm attached resembled a mysterious rabbit warren of bedrooms, steep stairs and musty smelling parlours with trim lace curtains over their little windows. It was strictly out of bounds and a rigid apartheid was practised between the house and the kitchen. No, Peggy, Granny would say, as all ears in the Clarence were tuned to catch the gossip. You'll never guess what I've been doing this afternoon. Chairs creaked all round the room as bodies bent to hear the scandal and what Granny had been up to. My mother played her part to perfection. Oh, Granny, how exciting. Do tell me, she chortled away as though she was on the stage at Exeter's Theatre Royal. I remember sitting on a hard, upright chair and fiddling with one of my socks. The staff came up, or those that could spare themselves from other duties, edging into the large room with its discreetly lit chandeliers, whisking invisible dust from impossibly shiny side tables with carefully folded napkins and moving surreptitiously to rearrange the tiers of cakes. The atmosphere became almost tangible, Outside noises could be heard through the bobbly, frosted glass windows that overlooked the bustle of the close. Cups of tea were suspended mid-flight towards parched and leathery lips, clawed, liver-spotted hands poised as they were about to grapple for square slices of stale marble cake. Oh, my dear, I've been doing a spot of winter shopping, exclaimed Granny with glee. Oh, Granny, how marvellous, but didn't you go shopping two weeks ago? My dear, Colson's had a sale on, and I thought I'd treat myself, said Granny, not to be put off. Now, in those days, when a shop, especially an exclusive store like Colson's, appointed by royal patronage, like the jars of jam and marmalade that we used to see but never eat, had a sale sign in the window, It was a rare occasion and was likely to bring folks to town who rarely stirred from their country abodes and viewed a trip to Exeter as something akin to foreign travel, or going abroad, as it was called in those days. Yes, my dear, I bought myself some new twin sets, said Granny, as a large lump of strawberry jam fell down her ample bosom like a bird doing an enormous mess. Yes, mess was the word my mother always used, whether it was birds, cats, dogs or any other creature. Granny hastily dabbed the mess with her napkin as hovering staff discreetly proffered more napkins and even brought a jug of water so that Granny could clear the offending stain. My mother leant forward, ready to wipe away what now looked as if Granny had been machine-gunned as red stars appeared everywhere "'across her caramel-coloured twinset. "'Oh, how unfortunate, that horrid strawberry jam,' said my mother. "'Do let me wash it for you, Granny.' "'But Granny didn't seem at all upset, "'and with a mischievous gleam in her eye, "'she beckoned to one of the young waitresses, "'and next minute a porter entered the room "'bearing a number of large carry-bags "'with the coat-of-arms of, of Colson's on them in subdued gold.' heavens said my mother as chairs were hastily rearranged around the room no one it seemed was going to miss out on this ma'am i want to do way, i piped up in a loud whisper at that moment really darling said my mother you'll just have to wait and i could hear an almost audible sigh of relief around the room as the show continued It turned out that Granny had bought five twin sets that afternoon to add to the seven that she had bought the fortnight before. Three were Granny's favourite colour of cherry red and judging from the oohs and ahs around the room as one of the girls held up a sample for my mother to see they were thoroughly approved of. Granny, I don't think it's wise for you to touch anything just yet until you... But it was too late. Granny, in her enthusiasm to examine her purchase, had placed a large sticky thumb against the cardigan, though she appeared not to notice it. At least the ladies, and they were, I recall, mostly ladies in the Clarence on those occasions, got plenty of free entertainment from Granny and her shopping expeditions, as my mother fondly called them. But the best of all were Granny's hats. I loved the way Granny used to wear her hats, sometimes stuck firmly on her large head, her hair hanging down equidistantly on either side, and at others, tipped at a jaunty angle, sometimes sporting an outrageously long pheasant's feather in their coloured bands. I also recall that Granny had found a marvellous young girl called Miss Dutton, who had an uncanny knack of knowing exactly what suited Granny, and whose bosses presumably rewarded her well. Years later, I also found that Miss Dutton had an uncanny knack of knowing what suited me, and I spent many happy hours contorted in the back seat of the car with her, though we were not trying on Coulson's hats. The whole of the bay window in the Clarence was reserved for Granny's assorted hat boxes. Invariably, my mother would ooh and ah at precisely the opportune moment, because as I now understand it, My grandmother took the hats on approval. Once tried on and given the critical eye at the Clarence by my mother, as we boys fidgeted in our chairs and looked longingly at the cake trolley. Just one more, mummy, we pleaded, mostly to no effect, as Granny decided which hats should go home with her. There was no danger then, as there is now, of people, at least of Granny's ilk, defaulting or like some spoilt Saudi princess racking up vast sums on underwear and then declaring diplomatic immunity. No, it was all very genteel and I assume that a discreet account would be sent in the post later and an even more discreet check written by granny and posted by one of the servants. Inside the kitchen cupboard. Part 10 news of the day and picnics at Salmon Pool. But we were as far removed from Granny's position of wealth as it was possible to be. In fact, a comparison between the Queen of England and one of the palace flunkies in terms of wealth would probably be an under-exaggeration. But dear Granny, for all her eccentricity was wonderful to us, and she would never have let it cross her mind that my mother might only possess the bus fare home and be scraping the larder to make us our supper. What my mother lacked in wealth she certainly made up for in social status. Her conversation was always sprinkled liberally with references to Lord and Lady Tiddlypom, as she invariably referred to the gentry. It seems rather strange, or at least an unkind quirk of fate, that both my mother and my father came from such privileged backgrounds, and yet we, that is my brother and I, were always being told by our mother that she was living on the smell of an oily rag. I loved some of her expressions, and when she was with her younger sister, there were always gales of laughter as they gossiped. One of my earliest memories of my mother and my auntie Maureen was taking us to the cinema though for the life of me, I cannot recall what we would have seen. Had I not such a vivid recollection of the beam of light from the projector, I would have said that it was the Christmas pantomime, but I know that it wasn't. It was what I later referred to as my mother's draw games. Everyone in my mother's social world came from one or other of a set of drawers. Hence, we came from the top drawer but the cleaning lady came from a drawer a considerable distance towards the bottom. I always recall on this particular occasion the hats of the ladies in the cinema, principally because they effectively concealed the screen as I tried to stretch my neck like a giraffe. I also recall the blue smoke spiralling ever upwards and seemingly drawn into the beam of the projector. In those days, the atmosphere was thick with cigarette smoke, and I'm surprised that nobody sued the cinema for cancer from passive smoking. But it was the fashion then, and everyone smoked. Even my mother, with her one a day, mostly ground into the ashtray. As well as the draw game played out at the cinema, my mother and her sister indulged in another game called Happy Families, which could be played at the same time and in the same venue. It went something like this. My mother, in a loud whisper, now I think that's mother with the daughter and the two children, nodding her head towards the vague silhouette of a family in a row of seats somewhere in front of us, all shoulders and curly hair. Oh no, Peggy, from my aunt. She's much too old-looking to be mother. I think it's grandma. Oh, nonsense, Maureen, from my mother. Shut up, from a seat somewhere to the left. And so it went on, until the interval. Yes, I recall it was very exciting going to the cinema, as we called it. For a start, there was always the news, with the throaty crowing of the Pathé cockerel in grainy black and white, sounding as though it had been inhaling far too much cigarette smoke. This was then followed by the enthusiastic, propagandist tones of the announcer, and then a cut to the battle-scarred soldiers and the partisans, the eyes of the latter firmly downcast, being herded out of some hovel on a farm in Cyprus. For that was the time of the independent struggle, when Colonel Grivas, a shadowy figure with a Greek-looking moustache, had a price on his head, as he was spirited from mountain hideout to mountain hideout, and the stately figure of Archbishop Macarius, complete with trim black beard, golden chains and square black hat. That was the way we got our news then. It was always dramatic, heavily edited and we always won. The reality, as I now know, was very different. And I've never, even as a child, wide-eyed with images of soldiers tramping through the rough terrain of mountains or desert, guns at the ready, being able to see anything remotely fascinating about war or the professional business of being trained to kill people. After the news came the cartoons, and I think this is where my mother and her sister would normally start their games. As everyone else laughed heartily over the simple slapstick comedy of Donald Duck or Charlie Chaplin in black and white, my mother would seize hold, metaphorically speaking, of course, of some luckless woman sitting a row or two in front of us. Oh, she definitely looks out of the top drawer, don't you think, Maureen? My aunt, never quite clear as to which woman in the smoky mass my mother was referring to, said, Oh, do you mean that one over there? Or perhaps that one over there, pointing surreptitiously oh no, not that one, the one with the bonnet, there, as the man in front turned round and gave my mother a frightening stare, his beetle brows knitted in fury. I guess it was good training for me, because I became an incessant chatterbox in cinemas, theatres, church, and on every possible occasion when it was important to be quiet. The glares and admonitions within earshot of our family inured me to the continuing stares and menaces as I got older, in much the same way as today's horrific violence on the television barely raises a reaction from our watching children. Now, I've always steadfastly proclaimed to anyone who will listen that anything more violent than Bambi and the Forest Bar is too violent for me. The other show that we looked forward to all year was the annual pantomime. This was before the days when famous stars of the stage and small screen were co-opted to play the principal boy. This was good old-fashioned fun, where Aladdin or Dick Whittington was played by a leggy blonde with leather boots on legs that went on forever. I do not recall fantasising about these girls. Not that I ever knew what that involved but I'd overheard my mother talking in a stage whisper about how unattractive Mrs. So-and-so was, but I suppose she must have plenty of S.A. When pressed, and to avoid being embarrassed by me saying continually in my squeaky voice, Mummy, what does S.A. mean? My mother told me firmly to be quiet, but eventually she gave in and said, Sex appeal, darling, and we don't talk about that and I didn't, and neither did she. But the problem with the pantomime for me was not the principal boy, at least then it wasn't. No, it was the wicked witch, normally played by the fairy. Even though I could see parts of her silvery costume peeping through the folds of the witch's cloak, that was scarce comfort to me. At the mere entrance of the witch, I was under the seat and crawling towards the exit beneath everyone's shoes, amidst mumbled curses and exclamations. I was quite frankly just terrified of witches, and nothing seemed able to assuage that fear. The consequence for the family was twofold. First, my mother spent the greater part of the panto, as we called it, in the foyer with me, pestering her for an ice cream or sweets. And secondly, me pestering the others, normally my grandmother and brother afterwards, to tell me what I had missed. It was not, one would call, a win-win situation by any manner of means. I admit it now, I had a vivid imagination, and as against that, my brother was more stubborn than the proverbial mule. Consequently, our outings as a family were almost bound to end up in a dramatic way. Even the simplest and most innocent of picnics could, given a bit of leeway, spark a dramatic incident, as invariably happened when we went to Salmon Pool. Not far from us through leafy lanes, the River X ran deep through meadows full of buttercups and over a weir. This was a playground for the spawning salmon, and those rich enough to buy a licence to fish for them. The river forked at Salmon Pool, the main stream tumbling in foaming white down the weir with a steep stone bank on one side on which the fishermen stood. The other tributary was an altogether less volatile body of water which meandered off only to join up with its larger brother or sister further on towards the outskirts of the city. It was this field with a rough bridge over the Quata tributary and a padlock gate to keep out all save the rich salmon licensees, that was a favourite picnic ground for us. The banks of the meandering river had been trodden down by cattle, the colour of the Devon mud, through which they splashed, and the river was clear and deep in a series of pools. On fine afternoons, my mother would announce that she'd packed a picnic, which consisted of jam sandwiches, perhaps a thermos of tea, and a bottle of milk. I always remember my mother's milk bottle, a special one that she took on picnics. It was oblong and tall, and my mother invariably sealed it by putting a piece of greaseproof paper beneath the cap before screwing it back on. I remember she always placed the milk bottle upright in her basket, with the old thermos, the sandwiches, a piece of cake, and perhaps an apple, and the old kitchen knife. She always took a rug with her on those occasions as the grass was not thought safe to sit on with one sit-upon without some sort of protection. Looking back, I realised that it must have been quite a trek for my mother. As per usual, she was left to carry everything and we boys just scampered on ahead. The first obstacle we accounted on our arrival was where to sit. Now, my brother had a phobia about people then and unless we were sitting on our own, with no one else in sight, he was not at all happy. As the salmon fishermen, with their vans and equipment, invariably had been there many hours before we arrived, this proved more difficult than it sounds. However, once a suitable patch of grass had been found, well away from the ubiquitous cowpats, which in itself meant a fair amount of searching, my mother would spread out the picnic rug, We boys would soon be off and peering over the steep stone bank that fell like a grey waterfall down from the green grass to the ledge on which the salmon fishermen stood. Looking back, I now wonder how on earth it was that the cows that roamed freely along those riverside meadows didn't also land feet up with the salmon fishermen. But they didn't. We stood on the edge looking down on the foaming water with the deep pools beneath the weir and watched as the fishermen cast their lines. Here and there along the bank, the silver flashes of trophies yanked fresh from the river, glinted in the hot sunshine, proof indeed that the long periods of inactivity, which we tended to observe, led eventually to a profitable return. But inactivity was not something that we tolerated lightly, and in no time we were trying to scramble down to the narrow ledge where the fisherman stood ever watchful. Bugger off, Sonny, and get out of here, was soon being uttered in menacing tones, as our scrambling feet dislodged clods of earth and small stones, which fell with alarming plops into the otherwise oily river pools. My mother had on many occasions told us never to go near the salmon fishermen. Oh, you'll get a hook in the eye, darlings, just like the Earl of Devon, so you must never get close to their rods. Whether in fact the Earl of Devon did get a hook in the eye, I was never quite sure. But however real the story was to me, it never actually deterred me from my descents over the stone bank, though I did keep a wary eye out especially when a salmon fisherman made a cast. Having successfully spoiled the afternoon's fishing, we raced back across the meadow, leaping over cowpats and sending clouds of flies into the air, through clumps of buttercups that turned our sandals and socks bright yellow. By this time, my mother had just started to relax and was about to spread the modest picnic out on the rug when another family appeared over the bridge. I'm not staying from my brother. I don't want to sit near those people. But, darling, don't talk such nonsense. They're not going to hurt us. But it was no use, and packing up, the picnic was resignedly dragged further along the river bank to another spot. All was well as we rolled out the rug on the grass, although by this time we were now slightly bored. Getting up and going down towards the leet, that small tributary from the main river that was favoured by the cattle, we jumped from tussock to tussock and stone to stone until we reached the series of pools connected by a slow, limpid stream. Content with throwing stones into the pools and watching the ripples spread out to break in wavelets on the muddy shore, we failed to realise that we had usurped the favourite drinking spot of the cattle. Now I was obsessed with the fear of cows. For each cow in my mind was a bull, and nothing could dissuade me from this. Whether they were in fact bulls, bullocks, cows or heifers was beside the point. Galvanised by fear, I shot through the shallow water, soaking my sandals and socks and plunging up to my knees to get to the bank on the other side. This merely caused the inoffensive cattle to raise their heads in idle curiosity and one or two let out a bellow. Screaming at the top of my voice, Mummy, Mummy, I'm being attacked by a bull! I plunged headlong across the river, not caring how wet or dirty I became in the process. My poor mother, who had only now managed to reset the picnic on the rug and relax, hearing my screams, appeared hastily at the river bank. However, in her hurry to save me, or perhaps to reassure me, She'd knocked over the tall, oblong milk bottle and its contents had spilt over the picnic rug. Peter, Peter, now don't be such a silly little boy. Those are perfectly nice cows. There's not a bull amongst them. But such reassurance did nothing for me as I cowered wet through on the other bank and nothing would dissuade me that my bulls had been transformed into cows. Yes, picnics were always a bit like that. And if by any chance there was no real drama, then the wasps, which appeared miraculously at the scent of the jam sandwiches, provided the perfect excuse.